font on this. All right, if you'll uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Let me open our time together this morning in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are the great God who has established an everlasting kingdom whose dominion endures from generation to generation. And we praise you for how you've made yourself known that uh, the heavens and the earth declare your glory your splendor, your wisdom and your beauty, your power, but even more so, you've revealed uh, your, uh, your character to us through the scriptures, through the words of the prophets and patriarchs. We thank you for their testimony of your uh, covenant love, your hesed that you put forth on your people, that even when they uh, sin, that you uh, remain faithful. And you continue uh, to both punish sin, but also to be uh, merciful. And we thank you for the way that that punishing and sin and mercy are showed, especially in the revelation of yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. God made flesh, who came and lived a perfect life so he could die a perfect sacrifice for our sins, that he would take upon himself the wrath and judgment that we so abundantly deserve in order that uh, your uh, amazing grace can be bestowed on us, uh, a a wonder uh, that we uh, can scarcely uh, conceive of. And we thank you for uh, how you work in our lives through granting of faith and repentance. And we ask that you would teach us of these things, uh, even as we study the prophet Daniel this morning. And we hear the words of uh, a surprising um, writer of scripture, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, as we encounter his testimony to us. Uh, Give us your spirit guide us into all truth concerning uh, Jesus and, and the life of your church, we pray this morning in Christ's name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so uh, in the past couple of chapters, we have seen the sovereignty of God working for the good of his people and demonstrating God's um, sovereignty over the nations. Um, And particularly, we've seen how God's working for the good of his people in contrast to the egomaniac rages of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, we saw Nebuchadnezzar's fear, his lack of trust, his restless heart, uh, manifested in murderous anger against the wise men when they could not reveal to the king his dream and interpretation. And in that chapter, we saw God's goodness saving Daniel and his friends by revealing the dream and its interpretation. And a chapter that started with them under sentence of death now ended with their promotion to high places. Last week in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar set up an enormous golden image that represented his name and glory, and he commanded all his officials to worship it or face death in a fiery furnace. Uh, Here, the three Israelites, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, openly defied Nebuchadnezzar, reminding him that they served a power greater than he, who would deliver them out of his hands, even if he didn't save them from the fiery furnace. And once again, we saw God acting powerfully to make visible his presence with his people and delivered these three men untouched from the burning, fiery furnace. And just as chapter 2 ended with Nebuchadnezzar praising Daniel's God for revealing hidden things, chapter 3 ends with Nebuchadnezzar blessing the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for delivering them from the fiery furnace. 
an action that earlier in that chapter he declared was impossible for the gods. So over these past uh, four weeks, not only have we seen how God has been both encouraging and working for his people, we've also been given insight into the heart of Nebuchadnezzar and how God is revealing his true sovereign nature to the Babylonian monarch. The God of Israel isn't just another national deity conquered by Nebuchadnezzar's gods, nor is that God a, a thing crafted by human hands, but a God who possesses the power to reveal truth and to act in history. And this God is working to establish an eternal kingdom superior to and sovereign over all earthly kingdoms, including that of Nebuchadnezzar. And today, Nebuchadnezzar himself will tell us how he finally came to realize the truth of this everlasting kingdom. So with that as an introduction, hear now the word of God from Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and thus, and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven 
and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven, and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and of its roots in the earth, bound with band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from, that time, from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it as we speak of it together this morning. So let's start um, with this, you know, probably the, um, well, for me maybe, the most striking aspect of this chapter is that it comes to us framed um, in this as a letter from Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth. So what does it mean for Nebuchadnezzar himself to, um, uh, to write this chapter that it comes to us in first person from Nebuchadnezzar and how does that um, shape our understanding of the words from the book of Daniel that was given to us?
talk about the letters of Paul and John and Peter. <laughs> There's a letter from Nebuchadnezzar? Well, we think so. <laughs> Not everybody thinks so, but we think so. Well, presumably, I mean, yeah, it's coming as the king wrote it, so maybe he really did write it, and Daniel's tucking it in here for us in the midst of what he's written. Um, but but to, to go back to the first person, we're given, and we've talked about over the last couple chapters, this comparison between the character of Nebuchadnezzar and the character of Daniel in chapter 2 and the character of these three Israelites in uh, chapter 3. And we've, we've learned a lot about who Nebuchadnezzar is from his, particularly from his actions, you know, um, how he tends to act rashly, <laughs> Um, you know, think of like that uh, line Daniel uses in chapter 2. Why is this matter so urgent? <laughs> um, the, the king uh, is, seems to be acting a little swiftly. Um, he seems to be um, not a lot of trust. Again, he distrusted his, his uh, counselors in chapter 2. Um, last week we saw he, he very much... Um, is uh, self-exalting, um, you know, uh, almost equating himself to the level of a, a deity. Um, so we've kind of learned about, and we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar from what he's done. Um, and we've been talking about that, tells us some, certain things about his heart, who he is. But now we get he himself. You know, we don't have to, to speculate based on his actions, what the state of Nebuchadnezzar's heart is. He himself is presenting that to us in these words. Yeah, Teresa and then Jeff. We don't know. It just says a span of it. It says a span of of seven. Um, it doesn't specify months, years. Um, and seven, he Daniel could just be using seven as a perfection of or a number Hebrew number of perfection. So he could just be saying it, it could just be an expression because it's not a definite seven years. It's it could just be for the perfect time or the complete of the time he, he loses his sanity. Well, we'll, we'll come to the, his restoration in a little bit. Um, but for now, you know, the, the emphasis, and, and that's part of the lesson, is God can bring down the highest to the absolute lowest. And um, imagine, like, he's going from the... He's being brought down from the splendor of his palace to eating grass in the fields like a beast, like, um, and, you know, and hair unkempt and the fingernails always get me. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like long fingernails. Um, but, you know, it's a great depiction of, of descent into to madness. And the, and just like we saw earlier with the, it, it's, it's not just a natural, I mean, it, it doesn't read like if, like, for example, the Habsburgs um, were notorious for intermarrying with one another, which is not good. Um, and Charles II um, was, like, physically, mentally not there, Charles II of Spain. Um, and that's... You know, that's kind of a natural illness. This is very much a supernatural madness that he's, like, he's cast down at a moment and then he's restored at a moment, not because necessarily it's a physical malady, but because it's a divinely given malady. Um, Jay, and then I'll come to you. 
Yeah, and as we think about this, like, um, you know, anytime, um, again, thinking of um, monarchs who have have gone mad or had suffered from some kind of debilitating disease or illness, um, the the court, the household, kind of protects them, like you know, because you don't want the people of the realm to know that king's off his rocker. So, you know, it's, you get this kind of tightly concealed, you don't talk about it publicly, you know, you contain the, the, what's going on in the royal household, you keep it as tight to the royal household as possible. So again, why is this, he himself is proclaiming um, how, you know, what happened to him and how he was driven to madness because of his um, excessive pride. Um, that God caused him to to lose his mind from a time until he recognized and acknowledged the sovereignty of God. Yeah, it's like it's like on it's the wolf disease. So yeah, there is a natural illness that fits these symptoms perfectly, but just to emphasize, you know, as I said earlier, Daniel's positioning and the king himself is positioning it as not, oh, I happen to get this strange disease, but God brought it on the sudden onset and it was God who released him from it. But but yes. Yep, yeah. Clearly God has brought this natural disease upon him. Yes, Philly. Yeah, and as we look at his response, notice Daniel, like, you're absolutely right, Bill. He's had these two amazing encounters, one with the God of of Daniel, and as we talked about last week, you know, has he put the God of Daniel together with the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because he he names them both by the individual God. Um, So he, but he hasn't learned from those prior episodes, like, um, you'd think he'd start to, like, oh, Daniel's God is the God who reveals stuff. Let's go to him first. But he goes to all these other guys, and then Daniel, at last, <laughs> like, you would think, like, after the events of chapter 2, <laughs> let's bypass all the guys who are not helpful <laughs> and get to the one guy who um, who has demonstrated his ability to... Um, have insight into the thoughts of the king. And here, you know, he's narrating um, this challenge isn't as stiff as that first one because he's telling what the dream is. Um, and then we get the interpretation. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you would think he, he, he God has been working on him. <laughs> and it, it hasn't yet gotten there. Um, and it's this idea, like, you know, but God keeps banging away at him. Like, God's not letting him alone. God is pursuing him, and he's not letting him, even though, like, I, I love this description, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So he, there, he's describing a period of his life where he had no external troubles. Um, you know, he's at ease. He's enjoying his prosperity. Um, we don't know, we don't give a, a, a specific time, but um, most people put this a little later in his life. So, you know, he's moved on from young going out to battle Nebuchadnezzar to sitting in the palace enjoying the the marvels of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, he's, he, you know, he, he's moved into the period of prosperity of, of his life. And yet, he has a dream. And as you say, Bill, you know, he, it causes him uh, fear. Um, and a lot of people 
because um, you know he tells what the dream is that this one doesn't seem like all like the the specific period of magic might um, might not be apparent, but the idea that the tree is Nebuchadnezzar like seems pretty obvious um, uh, given what we know about his um, sense of self. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, I think in his heart, he knows he's the tree um, that, that is beautiful and big and is ripe for a uh, enormous fall. Um, so some people, even if he had told them, um, they would have been terrified to tell him what it meant. Like, again, like, we, we've got a clear pattern, Nebuchadnezzar's a hothead, and, uh, oh, yeah, King, you're going to get lopped off. <laughs> what? <laughs> Nobody wants to be the person to tell him. So, so some people, so like, if you take the path, like, he's telling us the dream, um, and he told them the dream, then people, you know, usually say it's because they're all terrified to tell him what it really means. And even Daniel is, you know, it says Daniel's disturbed by its contents. And, and the king's like, no, let not the dream or its interpretation trouble you. And, and we'll get to Daniel's response in a second. But for the second path, um, yeah, that he's just telling us in retrospect. Um, uh, what the dream was. Yeah, it's not clear. We don't have the same kind of confrontational situation that we had in chapter two. That's pretty clear that it's not set up as, you know, tell me or everybody dies. <laughs> and again, maybe Nebuchadnezzar's mellowed a little bit in his old age. The, the rash anger has disappeared, but it's still very much part of who he is. And so, yeah, they're all these guys are probably terrified because they know what happened the last time <laughs> he had a dream. Um, well, the specifics, like when it's going to happen at the time, um, you know, I don't know. I, I'm just trying to, to spin out the two um, uh, pathways out there. Uh, but the point is, it's not as confrontational as the first one. But and most people again emphasize that you know um, the the Daniel coming last, um, like he hasn't, as what Bill said, Nebuchadnezzar clearly hasn't um, you know learned, or maybe he's hoping, like he's hoping that somebody else is, is going to be the yes man who tells him, oh, yeah, this is somebody else. This is your enemy. Like, um, some people have kind of that, that Nebuchadnezzar, it, it's not just the dream itself troubles him, but that he has a sense that the dream's about him, and, and that's what's troubling him. Um, it's not just a frightening, beautiful tree gets torn down. Boy, that was scary, but this is me getting torn down. And so maybe he's in the, um, he's looking for, you know, looking for um, some kind of comfort through other people, whereas he knows Daniel's going to lay home the truth. Um, and bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, there, there's this sense that, um, that uh, yeah, uh, and, and as we think about this, uh, uh, we can look at Nebuchadnezzar as, you know, uh, really applicable, I think, to, um, to non-Christians today. So if we take Nebuchadnezzar as someone um, in need of conversion, in need of being set right before God. He, he's materially prosperous, but he doesn't have peace. Um, and as we think about, you know, sometimes it seems hard to share the gospel with our friends and neighbors who seem to have it all. But in reality, they don't have that inner peace. Um, and um, what's needed is a person needs to humble themselves or, or be humbled in order to um, set the stage for repentance. So I think Nebuchadnezzar, in his prosperity uh, and ease, is, is, has a realization that um, all is not right with him, um, that there's something wrong. Um, and what's wrong, as Hill will get to, is his uh, continued refusal to acknowledge that there is someone superior to himself. I, I, this seem, would seem a really odd self-fulfilling um, <laughs> prophecy to get this uh, really like, oh, I'm at some period in the near future, I'm going to go mad. Um, like, and not just mad, like a specific type of mental illness that's really rare um, and has these dramatic side effects. Um, that would be a really odd self-fulfilling. I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes like, you know, um, we can have that sense, oh, you know, the game's not going to go well tomorrow, and because I'm nervous, the game doesn't go well tomorrow. Like, you know, I you know, I've let the, I've basically psyched myself out um, um, and need to go see a sports psychologist or something. Um, but that doesn't seem to be like, and especially as Tim noted, there's a 12-month lag period. Um, and, and he positions it, you know, he's just walking one day admiring and, you know, and self-extolling himself. So he wasn't in a bad frame of mind at that the moment he goes mad, he's pretty high on himself. <laughs> Is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This does not seem like he's real troubled about the dream at this moment. So I would, I would say the self-fulfilling part, yes, that does happen, but that, I don't think that's what's happening. There, I mean, they're like we're told at the end of chapter two um, that Daniel uh, is set uh, over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Like, so they might, you know, but we, why they're not appearing together in these last three or last two chapters? Last week was just three. Today it's just Daniel. I don't know. Uh, a lot of time, one, a lot of times passed, so, you know, they might be in different positions by now. They might be dead. I, I don't know. Um, a significant, uh, again, it seems a significant amount of time has passed on. And we've entered into, um, and, and as far as like a lot of people um, call this question, chapter into question because, oh, there aren't outside descriptions of, you know, Nebuchadnezzar eating grass and all this stuff. But there, the last part of his reign is blank. Like, we don't, if you take the last part of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, we really don't know much of anything. So there, there's a historical silence about his reign. 
and there are references to him suffering a debilitating disease illness without specifying exactly what it was. Um, so, you know, so if we take that as sort of setting the scene, this is probably happening in the latter stage of Nebuchadnezzar's life. And this is literally, you know, like after the chapter he's gone. So um, we've moved on to another Babylonian monarch. So it's coming toward the end of his life. So a, a fair amount of time has passed since chapters two and three. Okay, yeah, Dan. That's what we were all wondering, Jay. Yeah, it's really good. Um, all right, well, let's, uh, let's, how, does, how does Daniel respond to the dream and its meaning? Um, and, uh, yeah, what, let's, let's look a little bit about, uh, talk some about Daniel and how he deals with Nebuchadnezzar before we get to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, return. Yes, Tim. Yeah, he's al he's alarmed by it, like, and and clearly, visibly alarmed that Nebuchadnezzar is, is the one like consoling, like, don't be troubled by it, Daniel. What? You know, just tell me what it means, like, you know. And so Daniel is affected by the dream and does that, you know, like, you know, it's it's kind of Near Eastern um, etiquette to say, oh, let it not be for you, King. Let it be for your enemies, but. I think Daniel means it, like, you know, he, he's troubled, and may this evil not come upon you, may it come upon your enemies, but this is what the evil is, this is what the dream means, but yeah, he goes into it disturbed um, because of the awful thing that's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, and again, like, think how, you know, to lose control of your mind in this way um, is a, without dying um, is about one of the worst things that could befall someone like you know it this is horrible and Daniel you know is affected by it um, and and says that to Nebuchadnezzar oh king if only this would happen to one of your enemies and not you but it's you <laughs> the tree is you <laughs> person that's going to be brought low is you He hits him with it. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted, acceptable to you. Break off your sins. What sins? What do I, I sins? By practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed. <laughs> you know, Nebuchadnezzar's like, what, what do I do? Well, let's see. <laughs> um, you know, uh, like, yeah, he, he like, he, doesn't lay off like you are a sinner and let's just start with uh you know oppression <laughs> um 
And it's this clear call to repentance, right? Turn from your evil ways, put on righteous ways, and, and maybe God will relent. Maybe there will be a lengthening of your prosperity. And maybe he does it for a while, you know. It's 12 months from, from hearing it to, to the execution of it. Um, so, but, but yeah, but it, it doesn't keep. So, yeah, he starts gently and winsomely, but when it comes to the truth of the message, he doesn't hold back doesn't hold anything back, doesn't try to sugarcoat it by, oh, it'll only be for a little time, don't worry. Like, no, this judgment is going to befall you. It's going to be horrible. Um, repent. Um, and, yeah, when it comes to the, to the message, um, even though it's being presented in a caring, friendly way, it's the full-on message of you're a sinner and you need to repent to um, to if you to have any hope of avoiding God's wrath. This is it. So, uh, you know, um, and like I always say, my standard line is, I don't know who's saved and who's not. Like, I can only go on what's a credible profession of faith and looking at a person's life and seeing if they're living in, in keeping with what they profess. Um, you know, is their profession of faith credible? So if we take this as Nebuchadnezzar's profession of faith, it seems to be pretty credible. But again, we don't have any outside information on um, the state of Nebuchadnezzar's soul. Um, so whether I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven or not, I, you know, what we have to go on is this. Um, and he, he does repent and acknowledge who God is at the end of this chapter. And that's for Babylonian king to do that again to be encouraged by this like if a Babylonian king can can say this <laughs> there's hope for anybody like you know never think that somebody's too far away from from um, repentance um, you know because if a Babylonian king can come to the point where it says who can bless the most high God praise and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So has he repented and come to faith or is he just now finally acknowledging, yes, there is a sovereign God over me and I'm just a lackey. Like that's, but in trying to decide, our facts, you know, are these. Like, we don't have any additional facts to help us understand this beyond what is being presented to us in the scriptures. It, yep, I mean, like, uh, extreme. No, yeah, I agree. Yeah, this is like, you know, I... You know, the conversations you have, you know, sometimes I have, like, my son, like, well, what if Hitler, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm studying right now, and Daniel, like, Nebuchadnezzar, basically the equivalent of the uh, um, maniacal dictator of the moment <laughs> is, is acknowledging the supremacy and glory of God, like, whoa, <laughs> And if that can happen, like, there is nobody too far gone. <laughs> um, you know, this, I, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is like, take whatever, you know, whoever the worst person in the world we can think of making a profession, uh, acknowledging the truth of something, uh, or truth of Christianity, this is that kind of radical equivalent.
And absolutely, Phil. And just thinking, uh, like to think again, the power of persistence. Like God hasn't. I mean, God has been showing Himself to Nebuchadnezzar for this entire book. Like from chapter one, Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's conquered Israel's God, and and lo and behold, he's learned. Well, hmm, that God reveals things. Hmm, that God can do the impossible. Um, to, you know, like he's, he's like acknowledging these truths, but, and now, um, again, it seems to be he's acknowledging that God is God. Like, you know, so we, we kind of have an escalation. You know, like every chapter, two, three, and four, has ended with some kind of declaration of Nebuchadnezzar about Daniel's God, or about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, and now we've dropped the prefixes of their God, and now it's just the God, <laughs> like, you know, it's, uh, there's a definite escalation, and God has been intentionally working on, in and um, around Nebuchadnezzar through the entirety of this, like, he showed him that dream, like, and Daniel says that in chapter two, the, you know, God wants to reveal something to you. Um, you know, God has made known to the king what shall be after this. God is, is revealing something to you. Like, this message is, is kind of got two audiences. It's speaking to the Israelites about how God is protecting them in the midst of exile in a pagan kingdom. But it's also a message to Nebuchadnezzar, I am God. I am the sovereign God. I have a kingdom that's superior to your kingdom. Anything you have, including uh, you know, any majesty, glory, dominion, um, possessions, everything you have is all a gift of, of mine. And he finally breaks Nebuchadnezzar by taking all that away from him. Like, you know, he, he, he reduces Nebuchadnezzar to his barest state. Um, um, just existing, um, without mind, without purpose, um, you know, without all the splendors and luxuries and enjoyments of life. He's reduced him to as close as an animal state as you can. And finally, finally, Nebuchadnezzar um, is, is willing to confess who God is. Um, but, but God has been working on him throughout the book. Yeah, Jay. It's like the, um, uh, you know, the, the guy who has the great harvest. He's like, I'll just, you know, build uh, bigger barns and, and live off, you know, the fruit of my labor for the rest of my life and eat, drink, and that night, <laughs> life is gone. And, and he is laying low. Like, it's this idea that, um, you know, every, you know, like, it, he, he's planning for the future and the enjoyment of it. And he needs to adopt the perspective that life is precarious. Like, no matter how much abundance you have, it can all, you know, be taken from you um, pretty quickly. Um, God can lay you low. And that's what he's saying. Like, he, he, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. <laughs> he can take the highest, the, you know, the tree that has reached to the edge of heaven and make it a stump. <laughs> Uh, a stump bound in bronze and iron, um, wet with the dew of the earth. He can take the tree that has sheltered beasts, and he can make um, that tree like a beast itself, and who the you know the beasts are companions rather than under them. 
Um, that's a good question. Um, so, I, I, uh, yeah. So, because again, there, when Daniel's first exiled, he's among the first of the exiles. So, there's going to be the big exile, presumably has taken place, and so you've had a scattering of the the people um, by this. So, yeah. How? Yeah, it's hard to say how quickly this is disseminated. But we do know by, at least by the second century, the book of Daniel is is prevalent. Like you know, it's among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So like, you know, so yeah, we it's like anything. Um, we can know about the circumstances of something that's been written, but we can't really know like how its dissemination, like how unless. Like every now and then we're given a glimpse of something written and then it's proclaimed to all the people like you know you get those great scenes in um, in Ezra for example like like so we know this is being written down and it's being proclaimed to all the people at once like we don't have that kind of yeah that kind of what is original audience yeah they would have I mean, presumably, yes, like, because somebody's got to transmit it, like, so it had to have gone to somebody for them to, you know, you know, um, but what the, you know, what was that, you know, and they told two friends, and they told two friends, and so on, so on, but what was that commercial, a good 70s commercial there, um, you know, what that pathway of dissemination, I, you know, it's, I, I don't know for certain, um, but I would say, given who Ezra and Nehemiah were, that they would have had access. Hard to say. Um, all right, uh, well, one final question before we end. Um, so, yeah, what do, um, well, let's see. What, what's the, to go back to um, Teresa's uh, question at the beginning, um, so what is the sin that causes this disaster to come upon Nebuchadnezzar and what is his pathway out of madness? Like, so what's, what's the cause, and then what's the cause of the return? Pride. And, and that's what Nebuchadnezzar, you know, points to. You know, um, he labels it explicitly as pride. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. And then we get the, um, you know, the expression of pride, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Um, and as we think, well, like, um, to, to go back to like what Jay was saying, like, if you think Nebuchadnezzar um, is going to be punished, like, he's going to be punished for like all the evil, <laughs> like, the oppressed people he's oppressed, or for taking down and destroying the temple um, you know, we could add a list of like horrible things that Nebuchadnezzar did, but at the root of it all is pride. Um, I, I wrote this uh, quote down from William Temple. The essence of sin is that I make myself in a host of ways the center of the universe. And that's, that's the heart of sinfulness. It starts with self. All the other evil things we do um, all, all grow out of this, you know, this selfishness, you know, this exceeding trust, pride, and self that is the root of all the other evil things we do. And this prideful self-aggrandizement, I, I mean, that's the great picture of him making himself the center of his little universe, and, and God is going to destroy that universe, <laughs> to show him what a real king looks like.
Yeah. Um, and, and again, this similar uh, theme of his pride. Yeah, it could have been like, because as you say, we, there are other scriptural examples where that's it. You know, the I'm going to cut you down by killing you, or you know, um, by not just destroying your mind, but destroying your. You know, like in the next chapter, we'll see um, with the handwriting on the wall. Like I'm going to literally give your kingdom to somebody else, and your life is going to require it of you this night. But it's not so with Nebuchadnezzar. Like. God is doing a work in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Like, and he's giving him this time. Yes, it's judgment. It's horrible. But it's also giving him the time and space in which he can repent. Um, that he can have this realization that there is a dominion greater than his own dominion. Um, there is a king superior to himself. There's a kingdom superior to the kingdom of Babylon. Um, and God grants him graciously, even in the midst of horrible madness, um, this opportunity for uh, to exercise repentance. Yeah, Tim. And all the stuff that comes with it. Yeah, we're all Nebuchadnezzars. <laughs> and we all need to adapt this mindset of, you know... Um, it's, and it's the idea, like, you don't have to have all, I always say, you don't have to have a lot of stuff to be a raging materialist trusting in the bounty of things. Like, you know, you don't have to be as rich as Croesus or as a Nebuchadnezzar um, to, to make yourself the center of your own universe and to think, oh, everything I have, I've worked hard for it, it's mine, um, and having that sense of self-possession. Um, rather than the attitude Nebuchadnezzar comes to, he, he comes to realize it's all gift. It's all part of God's grace. Whatever splendor, power, possessions, authority I have, it's all from God. Um, and that is a life-changing perspective that we all need to have. Um, and I didn't intend to like, like come in and say, be like Nebuchadnezzar, but... <laughs> um, but we, we do need to be like Nebuchadnezzar at the end, <laughs> not, <laughs> not early Nebuchadnezzar, um, but the end of Nebuchadnezzar, like having this kind of attitude, um, change of heart, like again, like it's clearly there's a change of heart. He no longer sees himself as powerful, the center of his own universe. He sees whatever he has as derivative. You know, he's moved from being... Um, thinking of himself, he's the originator of his, his glory to seeing whatever splendor he has comes from God. Um, and that is absolutely the attitude we all need to have. All right, well, we're uh, at time, so let me bring my closing prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for how you have blessed us with so many rich examples of um, repentance and uh, profession of faith in you. And uh, clearly, um, in this chapter, we see someone who we would consider the chief of sinners, um, acknowledging uh, uh, your glory and your splendor and your grace and goodness and your power. And um, what an amazing uh, message to us that uh, if someone like Nebuchadnezzar could say words like this, no one is too far gone. Um, that if someone who's in such a prosperous state uh, such as this can be brought to the point of acknowledging who you are, um, no one uh, is, is beyond 
the pale. And uh, if you give time um, uh, for people like Daniel to continually be in the presence um, and to uh, give testimony like he and his friends do of who you are and um, your kingdom that you're establishing, help us have that same kind of um, long-suffering steadfastness as we seek to um, proclaim in word and deed the good news of your kingdom and uh, help us to continue to uh, revel in your glory even as we come to worship you in this coming hour. We ask this in Christ's name by the power of your spirit. Amen.